Let us pray. Father, you now draw us to yourself and mold us and shape us and conform us more and more to the image of your son, Jesus. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you, and, and good morning to everyone watching via the live stream. Again, so glad that you joined us, and we miss all of you who um, aren't able to be back yet. Looking again at our gospel reading from Luke's gospel this morning, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles or with your devices to Luke chapter 13, focusing on verses 1 through 9 of Luke chapter 13. I made reference to these verses last Sunday in my sermon. Um, from a little further along in Luke chapter 13. And I reference back to especially verses 6 through 9, the parable of the barren fig tree. This parable being an important leading up to what Jesus said in verses 31 through 35 of Luke 13, which we looked at and focused on last Sunday. Now, as we look at our reading today, there are two distinct parts. First, in verses 1 through 5, two tragedies are reported to Jesus with what appear to be mixed or distorted perspectives and motives on the part of those who bring the message. Jesus brings both clarity and a corrective to the message bearers. And his response was probably not at all what those bearing the message to Jesus either expected or what he wanted to hear from, what he, they wanted to hear from him. Then second in follow-up, Jesus teaches through a parable to reiterate what he said in response to the two tragic events that were reported to him. So let's start by taking a little while to look at the report of the two tragedies in verses 1 through 5. Some within the crowds that were following Jesus at this time, as he continues his ministry in Galilee, bring news to him. The first point of news they bring to him is of a group that Pilate has massacred, a group of Galilean Jews, as they offered or were preparing to offer sacrifices to God. All indications point to this having taken place either in Jerusalem or on the Galileans' way to that city to observe the Passover. Now you might ask, how do we know it was related to the observance of the Passover? Well, if we look carefully at this, the Passover was the only time that laity slaughtered or sacrificed their own animals. At all other times, the priests of the temple performed the sacrifices on their behalf. So this points to it being somewhere around the Passover. And Pilate's horrible actions here were certainly intended to defile their sacrifices and to insult the Jews. And in the wake of this, no doubt, social and political tensions were running high. But the message bearers seemed to be testing Jesus, trying to draw him into the social and political tensions which were running high trying to draw him into the foment of the hour, if you will. But Jesus doesn't fall for this. We'll come back to that. The second thing they tell Jesus is of the tragic death of 18 people when a tower at Siloam fell on them. Now, this was probably a tower or some sort of scaffolding in the ancient walls of Jerusalem near the pool of Siloam. And the pool of Siloam, we need to note, was an important water source for the city of Jerusalem. Both of these things were genuine tragedies. 
But those reporting the events are trying to draw Jesus not only into the temporal political foment of the moment, even more significantly, there is an attempt at self-justification here, and we cannot miss that. An attempt to somehow assuage their own consciences. Certainly disaster and tragedy befell these people because they deserved it. They did something. They got what was coming to them. And they clearly were more sinful than us because it happened to them and not to us. And therefore, we are certainly more righteous, clearly more righteous than they were. Now, that kind of thinking isn't unique to the biblical period, is it? It's not so distant or so ancient of a concept. It's actually very common throughout human history and far too often in the history of the church. And we are very quick to point the finger at others and say, that's the judgment of God. But when tragedy befalls us, we have the converse. Jesus knows what this group is up to. Joel Green in his wonderful commentary on Luke says this, behind this report, Jesus reads an attempt at self, rooted at self-justification in the common notion that disaster befalls those who deserve it. It is true that Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 30, to name only one example, insists that judgment will overtake those whose lives are characterized by disobedience. But this is not the same thing as arguing that disasters come only to those who are disobedient. In fact, Jesus' reply does not deny sin, sin its consequences, nor that sin leads to judgment. Instead, he rejects the theory that those who encounter calamity have necessarily been marked by God as more deserving of judgment than those who do not. The things we're talking about here are different than the calamity, which is the direct result of sinful behaviors. An example, this is not going to happen, just for the record. If I got inebriated and then got in my pickup truck in the middle of the night and went out on a country road and drove at 100 miles an hour and lost control and hit a tree or something like that and died, that would be a horrible tragedy. But that is a direct result of my sinful behaviors. That's very different than a general calamity like a storm that befalls someone or a building collapse that hurts innocent children. This did not happen to the Galileans going up to Jerusalem because they were more horrible sinners than other Galileans. The 18 Jerusalemites died due to a structural failure, an unexpected calamity. And here's what Jesus has to say about the matter. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus stands the motives of those bringing the reports on their head. And he gives a sobering warning to them and to us. Apart from repentance, judgment is coming to everyone. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. Verse 3. It is not a matter, brothers and sisters, when physical death will happen, and it will, despite what some people might say about themselves, it will. Nor is it a matter of why or how. 
Only repentance will prevent lasting death, eternal separation from God. And we need to stop focusing on judging and assessing others and put our own houses, our own heart houses in order. To poignantly bring this home, Jesus then teaches in a parable. And the focus in all of this is that those who are, who are unrepentant have not escaped judgment because of their own sanctity, nor have those who repent. Rather, it is because of God's mercy. Because of God's mercy. Look at verses 6 through 9 with me as we read this parable again together. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. As we look at this parable, there are four points I'd like to make here, four things that this parable teaches us about repentance. The first is this, repentance is necessary and repentance produces godly fruit. Now, when we, we probably need to start by defining repentance. When we think about repentance, um, in the ancient Near East, in the biblical era, it was not just a religious or spiritual term. That was a day when there were no road signs, there were no maps, there were no GPSs, and they certainly didn't have ways on their phone to tell them how to get around the traffic jam. But as a person walked from one destination to the other, if I was walking on a plane and going toward the sea, if I arrived in mountainous terrain, I would have recognized that something was amiss, that I was going the wrong direction. And that is the first act of repentance, acknowledging, admitting that one is going in the wrong direction, whether that be physically because you're traversing across a, an open area or spiritually, we're going in the wrong direction. The second act, the second part of repentance is adjusting course. It's going in an alternate, going in the opposite direction. That's really what repentance is. It's, it's we're going one way spiritually, headed for disaster, and by God's grace and God's power, we make a U-turn and we turn toward God and toward the things of God and away from the things of this world and things that aren't of God. Repentance is a good thing. To quote the late Reverend Charles Crabtree, who was for many years Assistant General Superintendent of the Assemblies of God. And I've used this quote before, but it's such a wonderful quote. And I heard him preach one time. Repentance is a good word because it is a God word. Too often, repentance is framed as negative. It's framed as a bad thing. Somebody's shouting, turn or burn, and that sort of thing. We, we know what, I think you know what we're talking about. But repentance is a good and a beautiful thing. Repentance brings life. It brings God's life. Repentance brings joy. Repentance brings healing and deliverance. Repentance brings peace. Repentance is necessary for salvation, a living relationship with God. And repentance by God's power brings life to that which was dead. 
In Mark 1, 4, we read this about John the Baptist. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In Acts chapter 3, we read these words. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Did you hear that? The correlation with repentance as we repent, as we turn to the Lord, This is the beauty of repentance, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, St. Paul writes, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Repentance leads to salvation without regret. Repentance, genuine repentance, brings a reversal in life by God's grace and God's power at work. In Luke 3, 8, we read these words of Jesus, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance leads to bearing godly fruit. When we are walking with God, our lives will bear godly fruit. We will enter into and we will walk in a lifestyle, a lifestyle of repentance. Continually daily to turn more fully toward God and away from the things of this world that tether us and prevent us from accomplishing God's will. And a lifestyle of repentance, brothers and sisters, leads to fruit in our lives consistently and abundantly. Now to be clear, so there's no confusion here, we are not saved, we are not redeemed by good works. Salvation is not earned. However, do not be deceived. Repentance, a rightly ordered godly life, will result in bearing of good spiritual fruit. Period. James 2.26 reminds us, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Repentance is necessary and leads to godly fruit. The second thing we see here is that a lack of repentance hurts all of us. The fig tree in the parable should have borne fruit every year. It had been three years with with no fruit at all. And its presence at this point was adversely impacting the entire orchard. It was sucking up the nutrients and the moisture out of the soil just as much as the trees that were bearing fruit. As a matter of fact, the question is posed in verse 7, why should it use up the soil? I encountered this sort of thing with my dahlias every year. You always get a few that just seem to not thrive, that aren't doing well, and come about early to mid-July, you know what I do? I yank them out and throw them in my compost pile because they're just crowding out other dahlias that are producing beautiful blooms. But a lack of repentance hurts us all. A few years ago, preachingtoday.com reported this from psychiatrist Dr. Stephen Gross, who points to research that shows we usually don't respond when a fire alarm rings. I know nobody other than me has ever been in that situation where a fire alarm goes off in a building and we kind of ignore it. Instead of leaving the building immediately, we stand around and wait for more clues. 
But then even with more information, we still don't make a move. And sometimes that proves deadly. For instance, in 1985, 56 people were killed when a fire broke out in the stands of a soccer match in England. Close examination of the television footage later showed that fans do, did not react immediately and continued to watch both the fire and the game, failing to move toward the exits. Research has also shown that when we do move, we follow our old habits. We don't trust or don't want to use emergency exits. We almost always try to exit a room through the same door we entered. After firing the Beverly Hills Supper Club in Kentucky a number of years ago, left 177 people dead, forensic experts confirmed that many of the victims sought to get in line and pay before leaving. And so they died in the queue. So Dr. Gross concludes, after 25 years, I can't say that this surprises me. We resist change. Committing ourselves to small change, even when that is unmistakably in our best interest, is often more frightening than ignoring a dangerous situation. We don't want an exit if we don't know exactly where it is going to take us, even or perhaps especially in an emergency. We want to know what new story we're stepping into before we exit the old one. Just like failing to heed a fire warning hurt numerous people because you get a herd mentality, a lack of repentance among one of us hurts all of us. We need to recognize, brothers and sisters, that we are dependent. We are dependent upon one another. When we live in a lack of repentance in ongoing patterns of willful sin and disobedience, we hurt each other. It sucks the life out of the whole body, just like the unfruitful fig tree sucked up water and nutrients from the whole orchard. I know this is contra um, extreme American individualism, but biblical Christianity is not lived in a vacuum. And how I live my life as a Christian and how I order my life and how you order yours affects each one of us together and affects the life and the spiritual tenor of this entire church family. And when we move forward with a lack of repentance, when we move forward without coming to the Lord ourselves, in the spiritual realm, it breaks godly unity. It establishes hindrances to what God wants to do among us. It sucks the spiritual life out of the whole body, not just us. A lack of repentance hurts all of us. The third thing we see, God is indeed patient, but our time in this earthly life is finite. God calls us to repentance and life now. 2 Peter 3, chapter, chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God is indeed patient. God shows his, as our psalm said this morning, his loving kindness toward us. But eventually, the tree will be dug up. 
And there are many people that live their lives with this attitude, well, I'm going to do what I want, however debauched that is. And at the end of the line, right before I die, I'll repent and make things right with God as if all of us had that kind of an opportunity. Kind of like a parachute on a, a drag strip car, you know, where you they race down the track and right at the end, out comes a parachute to stop them from losing control or going off the track or hitting a wall or the stands at the end of the track. That is not how the spiritual life works. And our repentance is not a last minute parachute to make sure we are okay with God when we die. And quite frankly, and many people live this way, but quite frankly, if someone operates with that mindset, I think it really should cause us to pause and question whether the repentance is genuine anyway. That kind of presumption leads to death. God is indeed gracious and patient, but the urgency to repent, to keep short accounts with God and to live godly fruitful lives cannot be overstated. And then the fourth thing we see here is that the stakes are eternally high. We must not play games with God. When we play games with God, the only person we're fooling is ourselves. And the reality is that the longer we continue without repentance, the likelihood of repentance truly happening diminishes more and more. Not because God isn't gracious, not because God is not long-suffering, not because God's power to deliver isn't sufficient, but because our hearts and lives become hard and calloused. Layer after layer after layer builds up to where we no longer can even sense or identify the convicting power of God, the loving conviction of the Holy Spirit. And we don't repent. The writer of Ecclesiastes says this in Ecclesiastes 12.1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Why does he say, remember your creator in the days of your youth? Remember him before the evil days come, before those layers of callousness and hardness of heart build up and those things take root in your life. And I want to speak directly to our youth. And guys, you know how much I love you and care about you. I hope you know that. But I want to speak to you. This scripture is an admonition, a, a strong encouragement to all of us, and especially all of you. Remember your creator. Remember the Lord now in the days of your youth. And you know what? God will save you from so many hardships and heartbreaks and deep wounds and pain that you then have to work through and deal with that hinder you in life. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Yes, it is wonderful to hear the testimony of someone who, who God pulled out later in life from a horrible, sinful life of debauchery. But there is no more beautiful testimony than someone who commits themselves wholeheartedly to the Lord at a young age and then lives for him without all that baggage that Satan heaps on us as we go through life without serving the Lord. Serve the Lord. Remember your creator now. 
Life begins, spiritual life begins with seeing our need to repent. Understanding that we are in need of God's grace and forgiveness and God's power to turn away from the things of this world. And this is not mechanical or transactional as some people would like to make it. This is not, let's make a deal with God. If I do this, God will do that. It's not let's make a deal. It's deny ourselves, take up our cross, die to self, and follow Jesus, and he will give us life. Because the stakes are just so high, we are called to a lifestyle of repentance as a way of living and a way of being. Every single one of us, this entire church family, And as we live lives of repentance, meaning by God's power, we continue daily to turn more and more fully to him and more and more away from the things of this world so those things don't have the hold on us they used to have. We will find ourselves sustained in ways we couldn't imagine by God's grace. We will find ourselves in ways we could never imagine infused with the power of God's Holy Spirit to demonstrate his life to the world around us and to be wonderfully used up for his kingdom purposes. And we will find ourselves flourishing and living daily in continual dependence upon God and the spirit of God in us who fills us with his life now and forevermore for his glory. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you are the author of life. Thank you that in your grace and mercy and loving kindness, you make repentance possible. That we can turn to you. We can know life. We can know Christ, whom to know is life eternal. And we can walk with you dying to self and living more fully into the life of Christ every day. So, Lord, show us even now areas in our lives where we need to repent, where we need to more fully turn to you. Lord, as a church, may we daily more fully turn to you so that we are fully consumed by you, set ablaze for your glory with no hindrance, no dross, but to be the people clothed in the blood of the land that you have called us and recreated us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.